You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to our first Switched On Australia podcast. My name is Anne Delaney. Thanks for joining me. The world is transitioning to an all-electric future, and over the next 20 years, we will all be on a journey to electrify everything – our homes, our cars, and our businesses. Electrification is now acknowledged as being essential for the world to get to net zero emissions in the fastest possible time. And that's because electrification is now the cheapest way to run our homes and businesses, and it's how we can have the biggest and fastest impact on climate this decade. Electrifying everything means ditching gas stoves, water heaters and space heaters, petrol cars, diesel trucks and cold-fired power stations, and replacing them with induction stoves, electric cars, trucks and buses, heat pumps, solar panels, wind turbines and storage. But we don't just need to electrify, we need to electrify efficiently. Energy-efficient, climate-friendly electrical appliances are critical to getting the transition right. The next stage of the energy transition will depend on what we do as individuals, and we know individuals can make a difference. Australian households have already shown how to kick coal out of our grid by putting solar on our rooftops. And we now have the highest rate of rooftop solar in the world and access to the cheapest electricity. But now we need to kick gas out of our homes and businesses and petrol and diesel out of our transport. And we can do that by electrifying everything. The aim of Switched On is to show how we can do this and to bust some of the myths and misinformation that stand in the way. Over the next few months, I'll be talking to some of the people who are at the forefront of the electrification transition. Big thinkers, energy nerds, government ministers, researchers, company executives, as well as local communities and householders who are making the switch. I'll be talking to people here in Australia and a few overseas to see what we can learn from their electrification journeys. My guest today is Dr Jan Rosenau. Jan is the Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project. It's a global energy think tank. He's published widely on energy and he's advised the International Energy Agency, the European Commission, the European Parliament, the US Agency for International Development, among others. Jan has a particular interest in the politics of energy efficiency and electrification and he's sceptical that we can just electrify everything and forget about energy efficiency. And he's not alone on that front. The International Panel on Climate Change reckons we'll have to double, maybe even triple, electricity generation by 2050 if we're going to electrify everything. So anything we can do to reduce energy demand by being less wasteful, will help make the problem more manageable and generate the renewable energy we need. I started my discussion with Jan Rosenau by asking him why he thinks electrification is so important. The reason why electrification makes sense is that it's the most efficient way to decarbonise. The alternatives that we have would require 
to generate some sort of fuel that could be combusted, but that requires some energy input, and that usually tends to be electricity in a, in a zero-carbon world. So it's much more efficient to use that electricity directly. So that, that's the main reason why we're going to need a lot of electricity and electrification plays such a big role, using clean electricity and using it very efficiently. Now, you've been looking at what will happen to energy demand if we do electrify everything. What, what have you found the impact on energy demand will be? So there is actually fairly good evidence on what the impact would be if we electrified all of these sectors to the full potential. Uh, and the answer is that it would shrink the overall size of the energy system globally by about 40%. Just by electrifying end users to the full potential, we get a 40% reduction in final energy use. And you might think, so why is that? You know, why could energy demand go down by 40%? Um, and just to give you a couple of examples, you know, one is electric vehicles. Uh, they tend to be about three times more efficient, using three times less energy to get the same amount of, of movement. Uh, and the other example is a heat pump, where you might get maybe four to even five times more heat out of the heat pump compared to using the same energy um, in, a, in a fossil fuel boiler. So th that big difference in efficiency drives that 40% reduction that we see when we look at the full potential of electrification uh, around the world. That figure you cited, the 40% the reduction in energy demand, it, it does on face value um, seem very counterintuitive. But what, you, what you've pointed out, I suppose, is that energy efficiency of modern electric appliances, they're just so much more efficient. It seems like energy efficiency is really crucial to this electrification transition. I think in other words, you could say that electrification is energy efficiency, and that is sometimes... <laughs> conflated, right? People people sort of think, no, no, we should do efficiency first before we do anything with electrification. I would argue that electrification is energy efficiency. It's, it's just so much more efficient. And we should see it through that lens. While it's not losing track of the fact that it's still going to be important to you know, reduce our energy demand as much as we can by doing things more smartly, um, and you know, even if we electrify, we still need, and you alluded to it before, a vast amount of electricity, of course. Uh, you know, organizations like the International Energy Agency uh, and other highly respected international organizations, um, you know, like the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, in their modeling show that we probably have to double, maybe even triple electricity generation by 2050 to electrify, which is a huge challenge. And anything we can do to reduce energy demand by being less wasteful um, will help making the problem smaller, making it easier for us to electrify, to actually generate the renewable electricity that we need to do that. Uh, so I think we should not lose sight of that. And what, what do you suggest we do to reduce our energy demand as we make this energy transition? Because there, there are a number of initiatives already in Europe that are happening, aren't there? Yes, lots of activity. And of course, this is a global effort. Uh, I mean, you know, key, key areas that I would point out, one is, of course, buildings. You know, when we look at buildings, we find that in, in many countries, 
buildings are terribly inefficient and that is also the case in australia uh, of course um where i've been recently um yeah it's the case in the country where i live in the uk um but there are very few countries where buildings are well insulated so there's huge potential for better insulation which has tremendous benefits in the long term you lower running costs it helps to um reduce health related um issues that are due to uh, your poor heating conditions uh, respiratory problems for example uh, it it increases comfort it just makes buildings much more comfortable um so huge potential there uh, to to reduce demand and then of course when we look at transport um you know, we we often talk about electric vehicles electric cars as the silver bullet but i think there's an awful lot more we can do to encourage basically more efficient modes of transport walking cycling public transport lots of potential there and that kind of gets you into the space of city planning uh, which is is not something we've traditionally thought of in the energy space uh, but i think if we really take this seriously then we got to look at all of these things together not just in isolation look at oh we got to electrify everything um we we also have to look at these other issues I just mentioned two examples in the building sector and the transport sector. Yeah, can I just go back to the issue about energy efficiency? You made that point that the best efficiency is electrification, but we can't just electrify our homes and businesses without making sure they are energy efficient, can we? Absolutely. And yeah, the argument that I sometimes hear is that oh if you electrify uh your heating uh, in a building then you need to first invest a lot of money in fabric efficiency and insulation you know making the building as efficient as as possible by insulating the roof space the walls the floor uh, better windows better doors uh, and only then can you install a heat pump for example that's an argument i often hear uh, i actually don't buy that um, and i explain why Uh, so if you instead of a heat pump let's say you have a, a an oil or gas boiler uh, that is carbon intensive uh, you know having a, it, it operating in a really inefficient building uh, often um, you're generating uh, very hot water or very hot air um, that is terribly inefficient it's very wasteful uh, and it's even less efficient than using a heat pump in in terms of the energy use for that and it's more carbon intensive so i don't understand why if you install a low carbon heating system we then say oh you can only have that if you have maximized insulation for that building but when you decide to stick another fossil fuel system in that's completely fine if your building is totally uninsulated even though the carbon emissions from that choice would be much much higher so i i just don't buy it i mean there are many good reasons why we need to insulate buildings but um i don't think it's a good reason to say oh just because you put in a renewable heating system now you need to to put in lots of insulation we should do it in any case and even more so if we have a fossil fuel heating system yeah i mean you've raised the issue of australia's homes for instance i mean the running joke is that we live in glorified tents because they're not thermally efficient 
And even though the government has recently announced some funding to upgrade the energy efficiency of homes, whether or not that's actually going to do the job that is needed is, a, is another question. How do you think Australia should approach this situation with our current building stock, for instance? I mean, I found it fascinating to, to, to see kind of what's going on in Australia with this huge surge in solar uh, and and uh, Australia clearly now being a global leader in, in solar deployment. And I think the expectation is that um, not, not that long and two thirds of all homes could have rooftop solar in Australia, which is a great success story. At the same time, it creates... Uh, some some problems for the grid if that if that is just done in isolation we already uh, i think have seen some areas where this is causing uh, problems in terms of too much solar when we don't need it um, and not enough renewable electricity when we need it uh, and and more efficient buildings can help with that uh, let me explain sort of why so if you have a, a well insulated building you can pre-cool or preheat a building uh, and maybe do that, for example, when you have lots of solar generation um, you know, during the afternoon, late afternoon, before you come back from work, you could pre-cool or preheat uh, the building, and then you need less electricity in the evening hours when you know, the sun is set and there's no more solar generation available. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of actually absorbing some of the solar that might otherwise um, difficult to, to be used during those hours when there's lots of solar generation and and then avoiding having to use other forms of generation, maybe coal, uh, which is still providing a significant amount in Australia to total electricity generation uh, you know, in the hours when there is no solar available. So it allows you to be fle more flexible with, with the heating and cooling load in the building. And I think that has tremendous benefits. But currently, of course, you know, the, the building stock in Australia uh, overall is it's pretty terrible when it comes to efficiency, and uh, yeah, that is something that I think the, the the state governments are well aware of and are working on. But there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, and, and there's lots of potential to, to do that, which I think is, is 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 great. Yes. Do you think it's a, it's a case of trying to find the right balance between? maximizing energy efficiency and and just getting on with installing electric machines i think there's a balance to be struck here um i am I'm, I'm skeptical of, of the argument that that goes that we just electrify everything and forget about energy efficiency i think that's that's um uh, yeah it's a more expensive pathway because you then have to find other ways of providing the needed flexibility uh, that you get from you know better insulated buildings that I've just described. Mm. Uh, you know, you, we're talking about sort of batteries and other forms of storage that need to come in, um, which are much more expensive than in increasing the efficiency of buildings, um, even just modestly. Uh, so I think there is a there isn't the trade-off between electrification <clears throat> and and fabric uh, insulation of buildings. I think there is. There's a sweet spot um, where the two of them work together very nicely, uh, and then also bringing in you know, on-site renewables like solar um, and the wider energy system. You know, all of these need to be put together in in, in a in a fairly intricate way 
so they can support each other. Uh, I don't think there's a trade-off, and and sometimes in the in the debate, it seems it, it seems that there is there's a there's it's either or either you electrify, you do energy efficiency, or do renewables. It, this is all about optimizing uh, energy, and that should be the goal, in my view, is how do we actually create a, a zero emissions energy system that takes advantage of all the different resources that we have in a way that minimizes costs for consumers. Because in the end of the day, you know, this is a huge undertaking and, and we should not uh, you know, opt for a pathway that, that ends up being more expensive because people um, will be quite wary of the cost of this transition. So we need to keep costs down. And we do that by by combining all of these different technologies in the smartest possible ways. Uh, but I think the role of government is to encourage uh, a more optimal combination of renewables, electrification and energy efficiency. Yeah, and you've been looking at the global trends in the uptake of heat pumps. Before we look at those trends, tell me why heat pumps are so important for the energy transition. What's so good about them? Well, when you look at the amount of energy that is being used for heating buildings at a global level it's it's a tremendous amount it's about a quarter of total energy use that we use for heat in buildings uh, so we're not talking about a small chunk of energy consumption and that translates uh, in into a similar amount in terms of carbon emissions so re replacing the fossil fuels that we currently use for that uh, with heat pumps offers a great opportunity and and that is something that uh, many organizations have identified in their sort of more models of how we get to net zero by 2050 so most modeling identifies heat pumps as the critical technology simply because they are the most efficient heating technology that we have ever invented um, mm. they, they turn one unit of electricity into three maybe four even five units of heat um, no other technology can do that. You know, when you think about even the most efficient boiler, uh, you might get to 90%, maybe slightly above that percent efficiency, let's say 95%. You can never get to more than 100%. So essentially, you're turning one unit of energy uh, into less than one unit of heat. A heat pump takes one unit of energy and turns it into multiple units of heat because it essentially transports pre-existing heat from one place to another. Uh, and that is the unique feature of a heat pump that no other heating technology uh, can, can offer. And that's why heat pumps are, I think, so attractive because they offer that ability to simply shift heat from one place to another uh, rather than combusting a fuel and then releasing the energy that's contained within that fuel as heat. We've we've already seen a, a massive uptake of heat pumps in recent years in Europe, and the International Energy Agency is is predicting an even bigger global boom in heat pumps. Can can you describe what that uptake has been so far in Europe? Yes, we've seen a massive uptake, especially over the last couple of years in Europe, uh, but also globally. When we look at other countries around the world, like the US, for example, we've seen significant uptake. Uh, of heat pumps there too but europe is is currently leading the way when it comes to market growth we've seen almost 40 percent expansion of the heat pump market uh, last year 
um, and and about a third uh, expansion of the year before. And that is it's driven partly by by policy. So more and more countries in Europe have introduced support programs for heat pumps, but also increasingly regulation to phase out fossil fuel heating, especially in new buildings, but also increasingly in existing buildings. But at the same time, we've seen energy prices, um, especially the, the cost of gas go up dramatically, driven by the war on Ukraine by Russia. Uh, so that is something that really, uh, I think, uh, triggered a massive increase in demand last mm. year in Europe. Um, and heat pumps are now seen by many governments as a critical technology to uh, phase out uh, yeah, expensive fossil fuel imports uh, in the aftermath of the invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, so we, we're seeing a lot of momentum and, and that is also being, I think, now followed up by industry investment. So currently in Europe, um, just over the last few months, about 5 billion euros of investment were announced uh, in heat pump manufacturing capacity. So new factories that are being built, uh, mainly in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and also investment by global players like Carrier. They bought uh, the German heating appliance manufacturer Fiesmann mm. uh, a few months back. Um, you know, that is, again, is a, a massive investment and a sign of confidence in the European heating industry and the ability to scale heat pumps in the coming years. So there's a lot of momentum there. Uh, and some countries in Europe have already managed to install um, as many heat pumps per 100 households as more than 50%. So in other words, um, you know, more than um, every second household in some countries in Europe already have a heat pump installed, which is, mm. is, is a huge success. Yes. And which countries have been at the forefront of rolling out the heat pumps? It is the Scandinavian countries in Europe that have led the transition. Yeah, they started early because they were facing very significant impacts by the oil crisis in the 1970s. Yeah, the Scandinavian countries had lots of heating oil being used in the building sector um, that was very expensive, getting much more expensive in the 1970s. And as a result, that triggered a massive investment in research and development around heat pumps, followed by um, a number of government incentives carbon taxation being introduced in the early 1990s. Uh, and that has led to this massive uptake of heat pumps um, yeah, in the last sort of 20 years. We've seen tremendous growth in Norway, Finland, Sweden and Denmark. And have you looked at what impact heat, heat pumps are already having on emissions reductions? Yes, you can actually see that in countries like Norway. You know, you see a significant reduction in emissions from heating where we have installed many of them. Uh, of course, when you compare that to a country, uh, for example, such as the Netherlands that have not, you know, hasn't under, uh, installed lots of heat pumps traditionally, you, you know, we're just about to see the impact that will have on emissions in the, in the coming years because we're just scaling up deployment there. But we have figures for, for Sweden, for Norway, uh, for Finland, uh, where we see a dramatic fall in, in heating emissions. And I could give you, I could give you some figures um, for for each of those countries. Mm. Uh, so in in Finland, we have seen a reduction of seventy two percent in carbon emissions from heating uh, buildings um, over the last thirty years. More than eighty percent in Norway and more than ninety percent in Sweden. 
of course, not all of that oh. is driven by heat pumps. You know, other things happen at the same time. For example, better insulation of buildings. We talked about that before. Um, but heat pumps played a key role in that. Mm, that's really interesting. Despite this big increase, though, in, in heat pumps being installed, there are still lots of myths about them, which are certainly holding some people back or many people back from in installing them. You know, they're too costly. They're noisy. They don't work in cold climates or in old buildings. They don't keep you warm. They only run off fossil fuel, electricity, etc., etc. What's your advice to consumers when it comes to looking at heat pumps? How should they navigate their way around all of these myths? So there are, as you say, many myths. Uh, some of them are um, completely false. Some of them are half true. Uh, some of them may actually be true. Uh, so it's important to get good advice uh, and um, not to trust you know, what, what is uh, being even reported by credible media outlets at some points. Uh, you, it's important to get independent advice by people who actually know how to install heat pumps well and have done this uh, many, many times. So I would encourage people to find at least three credible installers who have a track record of installing heat pumps who can give you advice on how to do this in your building uh, what would be involved in doing it because only then can you really find out what the costs would be what would be involved in the installation uh, but many of the myths that you can find online that are being spread some of which are being spread deliberately by uh, special interest groups mm. uh, are simply false and uh, are, are being spread to deter people from even getting uh, a quote from installers uh, and even trying to get a heat pump installed. Um, so I would encourage people to to ask someone who actually knows the technology has installed it many times uh, and can can give you an idea what it would actually mean for your building. You're listening to Switched On Australia, where we discuss Australia's path to electrification, the opportunities and the challenges. And my guest today is Dr Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project, a global energy think tank. And we've been discussing why heat pumps, including air conditioners, we don't always refer to air conditioners as heat pumps here in Australia, why they're such a critical technology to get the world to net zero by 2050. One of the problems, though, many countries are facing, including Australia, is finding qualified and knowledgeable tradies and engineers to install all the heat pumps that we're going to need. The success story I've, I've told you earlier about the Scandinavian countries, part of that is to do with actually addressing that head on. Um, there were some bad installs uh, in all of those countries, and as a result, government um, have governments have stepped up and developed consumer protection policies, which you know, then ensured that consumer confidence was high and remained high. Um, and that was really critical because once consumer confidence dips, then it's very difficult for the market to grow and expand. Uh, so this is, is not a trivial issue. It's, it's, it's just as important as providing the right incentives uh, for people to install heat pumps, it's very important to also make sure that the quality is, um, is very high. You, you said earlier that one of the reasons why there has been this big uptake in heat pumps has been because of regulations. How important is the banning of new gas and oil installations, for instance, for heating? 
So regulation is going to be important um, in the future. And the main, the main reason why I say that is that if we look at the remaining time that we have left to fully decarbonize the building sector, you know, we're talking here about maybe 20, 25 years. And the lifetime of a heating system um, is about 20 years in Europe, um, uh, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. That's no different in other parts of the world. You know, those lifetimes are fairly consistent. So any system we put in now um, you know, will still be there in maybe 2040, 2045. Um, so we, we better make sure that everything we install now is is, is compatible with net zero. Um, and the, the sooner we start doing that, the better. And that, that's something the International Energy Agency actually said already two years ago in their net zero 2050 report and said again in the World um, Energy Outlook recently, you know, we've got to stop installing fossil fuel boilers actually by next year or the year after. I think 2025 was their target year. That's what they said. And uh, we should we should start doing that. Um, it's not easy to do that, but it's something that we need to do in order to avoid having to essentially replace fully functioning heating systems at much higher cost uh, later down the line. There is still resistance though, isn't there, Jan? Because um, I'm thinking of Germany. There was a bill to ban new gas and oil connections for heating in Germany by January 1, I think it was, next year, 2024. And that's that's generated quite a, a backlash to the legislation. Uh, tell me, where where is that legislation at? Yes, Germany is is a tricky place um, uh, when we look at good examples for how these bans are being introduced. The The current state of the discussion in Germany is that the the coalition government has agreed on, on, a, on a compromise that now has to pass through the parliament. It's a pretty complicated compromise. But in essence, what the German government agreed to do in its coalition treaty back in 2021 was to say that all new heating systems installed after 2025 um, need to run on at least 65% renewable energy. And that was brought forward then to 2024 after the invasion of Ukraine um, and was then heavily politicized um, earlier this year where there was a very fierce discussion about this law driven by um, very negative media coverage, especially by, by one very influential German newspaper, the Bild Zeitung, which is mm. uh, a major German tabloid. Uh, but also the Liberal Party in Germany um, was uh, very vocal on this topic, even though they're part of the coalition, um, and essentially trying to sort of water down the law, uh, adding lots of exemptions or stopping it altogether. And we now end up with um, a, a much weaker law as a result. We don't know yet exactly um, what would be agreed, um, what the parliamentary process will lead to, uh, but the expectation is that it's going to be um, a less ambitious law. However, it will still require a significant number of heating systems that will be installed to run on renewable heating in the coming years not by 2024, which was the, I think, the aim of the government originally, um, but uh, at a later stage. But it's still a very significant development, and we shouldn't underestimate the impact this will have on the heating market in Germany, but I think also more generally the heating market um, elsewhere, because this is an important market in Europe with a very large industry. Mm. So this will have Im impacts beyond Germany. 
That's interesting. Just a final question, Jan. How do you envisage the house of the future? What will it look like if we do manage to decarbonise? So the house of the future, I think, will be fully electric in the majority of cases. It will be much more efficient, have better insulation, not up to passive house standard. I think that is something that is an option for some buildings, but not for the majority of buildings. Um, It will have some form of on-site generation, mainly solar. Um, It may have some form of heat storage and electricity storage. And by that, I mean um, a battery or a thermal battery, for example. Um, And it will be grid integrated. So it will be much more smart, smartly interacting with the grid than it currently does. So um, buildings may follow uh, price signals, for example, in how they operate their heating or their cooling system. Um, And buildings will often also have an electric vehicle charger, of course, that is uh, providing charging opportunity uh, on site. So that's sort of, I think, where the direction of travel is. Um, Electrification, efficiency, um, and on-site renewables, uh, and flexibility enabled by maybe some form of storage. Um, I think that combination of technologies, um, I think that's the direction of travel. Jan Rose now. Thank you indeed for joining the Switched On podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure talking to you. Dr. Jan Rosenau is the Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project, a global energy think tank working towards a clean, equitable and cost-efficient energy future. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the myths about heat pumps that Jan mentioned, we've posted a myth-busting article on the Switched On website that Jan has put together. Now, one of the issues Jan raised was the need to ensure no one gets left behind on the electrification journey. And that's a very real risk because of the upfront costs of some electrical appliances. So on our next Switch On podcast, I'll be talking to Craig Memory, who's part of the Energy and Water team at the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, who advocate for sustainable and affordable energy for everyone. Craig will also be discussing how we can electrify the smart way or do it the slow and expensive way. Till then, I'm Anne Delaney. Keep electrifying. <laughs>